0: Our reading this morning was one that we read at a poetry gathering that started in April, a program that we've continued. We did a few weeks, I think I mentioned once, on what's called ekphrastic poetry. That's our big word in the poetry group that we've learned. It means a work of poetry that's responding to a work of art or a piece of music. And our poem this morning, our reading, is just such a poem. Auden wrote it as a young man in 1938 during a time in Brussels in Belgium. There he had seen works of art at the Royal Museum of Fine Arts of Belgium. And those works he had seen included The Fall of Icarus, that's printed on your order of service cover. A painting credited to Brueykel, but actually we now know it's probably a copy of a lost work, but be that as it may, It was the composition that Auden was speaking and responding to and two others, including the census at Bethlehem that's also in your order of service. And here's what he wrote. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or Opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, <clears throat> there must always be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course, anyhow, somewhere in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away, quite leisurely, from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone, as it had to, onto the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing. A boy, falling from the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. Really, for this sermon, I feel like I should have a a big screen and a pointer and all of you here. And so I could ask, so someone tell me about the story of the fall of Icarus, but I don't want to put too much pressure on Sabrina. And one of you would remember the Greek myth from childhood and you would remind us how Daedalus was the servant of King Minos in Greece, Daedalus, the great builder of the labyrinth, the one that held the Minotaur captive, and how Icarus was his son. And both essentially were held captive in this palace because Daedalus knew this important secret about the labyrinth and how to escape. But Daedalus wants to free them, especially his boy. So the great inventor and craftsman, he creates wings, architects' wings for both of them, wings made of branches and wax and and feathers so that they can fly from this place. And yes, the father warns the son about the weakness of his contraption, that the the wax will melt if it comes too close to the hot sun. But his man child perhaps enjoys humankind's first flight so much that he maybe forgets himself in the power and the rush of it all, or maybe he wants to just stretch his new wings as far as they will go, and who could blame him? So he makes the fatal mistake and he flies way too close to the sun, close enough at least to melt the wax, and so the feathers drop away, and the boy drops too, to his death in the ocean. There is a painting of it that Auden had seen, the one that's on your order of service cover, the one I would have up here on the screen with the pointer. But look at it. It's funny to look at it. Icarus is a bit of a mystery in it. I mean, it's a a landscape, really. Although since you and I are tipped off by the title, we, we probably would, we might look a little harder and there find eventually the boy in the lower right hand corner of the canvas, white legs disappearing just beneath the water. In the poem that we read as our reading this morning, Auden speaks to another painting by Bruechel, The Census at Bethlehem, also conveniently located in your order of service. And if you were all here, why, I'd ask, census? Bethlehem? And you would tell the story that you've heard at a hundred Christmas eves. The one maybe from the Gospel of Luke, according to which we are told the governor of Syria, well, calls everyone for the first census, everyone to the town from which they were born or came or their people came to be counted. And so Joseph journeys from Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he's from the house and line of David. But also everyone knows who's seen a nativity pageant that Joseph didn't travel alone. No, his very pregnant wife, Mary, came along too, riding a donkey. And you know the rest. When they arrive, there's no room in the inn because everybody's there for the census. And what follows is this magical night in the manger, this baby-born And the shepherds and the wise, people with their gifts who show up guided by a star, and something, something has shifted in the universe, something important that night. And this other painting, in your order of service, I mean, it's supposed to be that scene, but if you look at it, it just looks like some scene from a a town, maybe in Holland a long time ago. And it's only the title that makes you look, maybe, for something for a Mary and Joseph, who maybe are this couple down at the bottom, heading somewhere toward the inn, I imagine. Clearly, there's some cultural appropriation going on, right? I mean, this definitely doesn't look like any Palestine I've ever seen, and ice skating isn't ever mentioned in the Bible. But looking closely, looking again, it doesn't seem like anybody notices that couple. There's no attention drawn to them in the painting. Does anyone in it seem to be drawn or taken by a strange sensation that something miraculous is about to happen? And it centers around these two strangers who've arrived back home. And for that matter, that painting of the boy falling from the sky, is anyone pointing? Does anyone look shocked? Or are people racing to get help for the boy who still might be saved? Nope. In both paintings and in the third that Auden refers to, where martyrdom plays out its horrors in a town scene, there too the animals don't notice the awful slaughtering. Life goes on. In all these paintings, life goes on. Miracles are about to take place and people skate. Boys fall from the sky in mythically tragic moments and plowmen plow and shepherds herd and boats sail on. People martyred and the dogs scratch and itch against a tree. I remember the morning of 9-11 in New Jersey, in a commuter suburb of the city where I lived at the time. I was driving to work just before nine, just before the first tower was hit, and I was thinking, what a gorgeous fall day it was. It was a perfect day, I thought, I mean the sky was clear blue and cloudless and the sun was bright and strong and it was this mixture of warm and cool that only early fall in the East Coast can be. And I marveled at all of this as the morning news droned on in the radio. It was, you might say now, an Auden-Broichel moment. Right? Wasn't it? Maybe that's something you've experienced. How funny it can be or not funny but odd or painful or jarring at least where there's this emotional and cognitive misfit in our experience and what's going on around us where the world just moves on despite what happens to us. Have you ever felt that way? How the Sun Shines on Your Worst Day. Prior to his trip to Brussels, where he wrote the poem that we read this morning, it's probably important to mention that Auden himself had just spent six months in China during the Second Sino-Japanese War and several weeks on the front line of the Spanish Civil War, places of great bloodshed and suffering. And one can imagine how maybe he felt upon returning that while wars waged on in Spain and China and Japan, all that suffering, his friends in England and America were likely having lovely, ordinary days of tea and crumpets and curled up reading novels. How everything turns away, the poet writes, quite leisurely from the disaster. And it's true, that feeling. The natural world and other people, too, can seemingly turn away from our great pain and our great joy, too. I mean, the world doesn't notice the great miracles, either, that were about to happen in that snow in Bethlehem landscape that we saw, does it? And it got me thinking. It got me thinking how we humans need someone or more than someone to witness to our lives. It's a basic emotional, spiritual, human need to have the world not entirely turn away or be indifferent to what we are going through, the great and the awful. Someone to stand and witness with us. I was listening to a podcast the other day and in it a man talked about June 2016 I think it was when there was the shooting in the gay club Pulse was the name of the club in Florida the night when 49 people were killed in the club and 53 wounded. All day, the man said, at work, no one asked him, an out gay man, how he was doing, how the event hit him. But it must have been obvious that he wasn't himself. The hate and the hurt hit him hard and I imagine, probably in part because it resonated with a life of hate and hurt and threat that was part of his experience of being gay. And he said it wasn't until that night, until he went to a theater group that he was part of. I think it was a theater group. And this this woman, who he knew, met him at the door as he came in and said, looked at him and said, How are you doing? In that tone of voice, in that way that told him that she knew that he might not be doing okay and why. And how powerful it was to have someone see him and stand with him in his world or be willing to on that day. I mean you and I, we don't live our lives for other people's opinions, or we should, we should try hard not to. We don't play baseball because of the fans, right? Or we probably shouldn't. We do it because we love the sport, to continue in that metaphor. We love it we love the feeling. We play it because we, we love the feeling of the ball off the bat or that triple play that's completed with elegance and strength and precision or the fly ball that lands in the mitt with this hard, satisfying thud. We don't do what we do for the fans or to please other people, but... But like the tree that falls in the woods, if you hit a gorgeous home run and no one is there to see it with you, the beauty and the power of it all, well, it does diminish the joy a little. It's partly that joys shared are indeed doubled, as the saying goes, and that sorrows shared are halved. There's truth in that. It's just also that we weren't meant to play to an empty house, as the poet says. I mean, most of you, I'm sure, know that part of how babies, how we as babies came to know ourselves as a person, to learn that we were lovable, to grow confident in ourselves. And our agency in the world was that mirroring that our parents did, right? We smile, they smile, we cry, they respond. And when they don't, if they don't, it thwarts our sense of self. It's so basic and it's so key. We all need someone who sees us they don't have to fix us. And in fact, they probably shouldn't try. That's not how love works. They don't even need to have anything smart or wise to say, though sometimes it's nice if they do. But somehow, they're standing with us, even quietly, as we seek to hold what happens and delight in it or struggle with it. Well, it's vital. It's vital to our feeling alive and whole. I was thinking of that with respect to our campers who are with us, how often in middle school and high school, I don't know, how often things can be socially kind of brutal, unless things have changed (laughs) radically since I was there. And particularly for folks who are outside a norm or hiding something that they think makes them feel odd or unlovable, how particularly brutal those years can be, suicides of trans teens, as I'm sure all of you know, is heartbreakingly high. Because they, like all of us, need allies to stand by them, and also folks to Witness to the joy and struggle of their lives and the beauty and the resilience and the hardship of their story. Just as we want desperately and need someone to witness to ours. This kind of witnessing, it's an incredible ministry that we can offer our entire lives It's living our belief in the worth and dignity of all people, one of our principles. It's living our commitment to one another's spiritual growth, another of our principles. It's a gift we can offer to other people. And it doesn't take any special training to just begin to do it. It just takes attention, doesn't it? The listening of the kind that Bernie Glassman talked about in that reading that Carmen and Alex share with people at the beginning of every Faithful Fools Retreat It involves standing with someone and looking in the same direction they are, not to fix it, not to have that brilliant wisdom, but just to be in it with them for a moment. You just have to notice, like that woman in the theater door, You just have to notice, I wonder how he must be feeling this day with that awful, hateful killing and being a gay man in this world today. And then all you have to do is say, how are you doing today? The refrain just has to be that we hear one another and we see each other, that's all. I think if we learn to live our lives more and more leaning into this way of being in relation and connection to each other, I I think and believe that those connections we have in the world will deepen and expand. I have no doubt that we will find ourselves, as Carmen references, speaking up and engaging more and more in compassionate action, Because the more you see people and understand what they're going through, the more you love them, the more you can't stand by when they're being hurt by the world, right? I have no doubt that you and I will be and are already being deepened in those ways by reaching out to one another and witnessing each other's lives. And also, I imagine living this way, we will find and foster incredible friendships. David White, the poet, who sometimes leads workshops in this church, he wrote something that I want to thank Mary Gans for sending to me. He wrote, The ultimate touchstone of friendship is witness. The privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another, to have walked with them and to have believed in them, and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. That journey that is impossible to accomplish alone is life. For as the poet Annie Dillard said, we are here to abet creation and to witness to it. To notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. Because, my friends, it was never meant to. We were never meant to. So may we witness well to one another's lives and be blessed by doing so. Amen.